Welcome to Brandon Avat. We are rejoined by um, Brandon Warmke from um, Bowling Green State University, and we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Uh, Brandon has edited a new volume of essays on this. Brandon, would you like to start with, with a story? Sure. Thanks again for having me, Mark and Jason. It's good to be back. So I live in the U.S., and I suspect that wherever you live, there are cases like this happening every week. In the U.S., there's a famous a sportscaster named Stephen A. Smith. He's the highest paid sportscaster and commentator in the U.S. I think he makes $14 million a year. He's basically paid more than any coach in the U.S. for any sport. And uh, he was talking about recently a famous baseball player in the U.S. named Shohei Otani. And Otani is uh, Japanese, recently moved to the U.S. and started playing in the U.S. People liken him to Babe Ruth. I don't know how many of your uh, listeners or watchers will know who Babe Ruth was. Babe Ruth is a famous baseball player in the early 20th century, famous for both hitting lots of home runs, but also being a pitcher. And and this is what Otani does. Like He's a, a legitimate ace pitcher and is i think leading the major leagues in home runs so he's he's a threat on offense and on defense and uh, he's probably going to win the mvp award for the american league so he's you know top of his game and recently stephen a smith said the following and i want to quote this just to make sure i get stephen a smith right here he said i understand that baseball is an international sport in terms of participation but when you talk about an audience gravitating to the tube, TV, or the ballpark to actually watch you, I don't think it helps that the number one face is a dude that needs an interpreter so you understand what the hell he's saying in this country. Okay, so he's basically saying it's bad for baseball that the fans of the game can't understand what this guy's saying because he needs an interpreter. And as you might imagine, this was not received well anywhere. He was roundly criticized on Twitter and social media and many of his colleagues and athletes criticized him for suggesting that there was something untoward or undesirable about this, about this pitcher needing an interpreter. And I think later that day or the next day, Stephen A. Smith issued an apology. I'll read you a, a portion of this apology. I want to express my sincere apologies to the Asian community and the Asian American community. I'm a black man. I religiously go off about minorities being marginalized in this nation. I screwed up in this day and age with all the violence being perpetuated against the Asian community. My comments, albeit unintentional, were clearly insensitive and regrettable. I'm sincerely sorry for the angst I've caused with my comments. Okay, so here's a situation in which we have someone who said something that's morally criticizable, I think fairly. He was roundly criticized for it, and he's apologized. Okay, now there are at least two kinds of responses you might have to this apology. Say, okay, thanks for the apology. We all make mistakes. So I forgive you or we forgive you. The other response is to say, no, not good enough or too little too late or no, what you did was too bad to accept your apology or say, maybe forgive you at this point. In fact, there's a famous sports writer in Chicago for the Chicago Sun-Times, Rick Morrissey, who wrote the following in response to Stephen A. Smith's apology. He says, there is simply no way a massively famous media member who has been outspoken on African-American issues could be unaware that Asians and Asian-Americans would be offended by his statement. Not in today's climate. He blurted out exactly what he believed. He knew it was insensitive. He knew he shouldn't say it. And yet he did. So here's a, another journalist saying, no, I'm not, I'm not accepting your apology. No, you shouldn't be forgiven. You're a bad person. You knew exactly what you were doing. Okay, now this 
kind of situation I think happens probably daily, at least in the US, these sorts of things happen all the time. And I think it raises several questions about public wrongdoing and how we respond to wrongdoing. The question I want to sort of raise from this story is, um, should Stephen A. Smith be forgiven? And, And if he should be forgiven, forgiven by whom? A lot of people have suggested that social media and maybe contemporary culture is too, that when people do wrong things, they're dunked on Twitter, they're piled on, they're called horrible names, and and that's it, right? No matter whether they apologize or not, they're sort of excommunicated from the moral community, they're labeled a this or a that, and, and, and then as a collective a Twitter crowd, we sort of wash our hands and move on with our day and find a new target. And you know, re- recent conversations have turned towards the topic of forgiveness. Are we a culture that's too punitive, or should we be forgiving more? And I think maybe one of the things we can talk about, uh, among other things, is should we be forgiving more? And are we forgiving appropriately? What's the right way? If there is a way, I mean, can I can I forgive Stephen A. Smith for what he said to or about Shohei Otani? Um, one of the issues that I'm really curious about here, and it's something that I've been interested in as a gay man for a long time, is people taking offense on behalf of others. Mm. Years ago, a a friend said that he was appalled uh, by the treatment of gay people in general. And I said, but you're not gay. So I don't understand why you're appalled. And he was very offended that I was offended, that he was offended on my behalf. Um, And I said, but but it's not your, you don't have a, a dog in this fight. It's not your fight. And I'm not appalled by the way gay people are treated generally. So why are you? And he was offended that I wasn't offended as a gay man. This notion of allying, of allyship to me is deeply bizarre. Um, This notion of taking offense on behalf of others without even checking with them first whether they take offense. And that seems like it could go in varying degrees of difference from the person who was offended in the first place. So this baseball player, it seems if you had to choose one person who's offended, who's been harmed, it's the baseball player, right? Now, the Asian community perhaps takes offense. And then beyond the Asian community, people take offense on behalf of the Asian community. And it seems to me like the further away you get from the person who's actually deserving of feeling offended or outraged, the less plausible it is to me that those emotions make any sense. I can understand the notion of empathy. So I can understand that when someone else goes through something bad and you perhaps see someone else is inflicting that harm, that you might feel bad on their behalf and perhaps even angry on their behalf. But it seems like you would want to feel angry alongside them. You would want to kind of like ask them, well, how do you feel about this? And is there some way I can help? Rather than assuming emotions on their behalf and just acting. So I I think your question about who is it that he's issuing the apology to and who is it that's accepting the apology or not accepting the apology, those are crucial questions. Why do you think people behave this way? Why why, Why do you think people take on burdens when they're when they're really not involved you might say it's, it's none of your business right it's none of your business rick morrissey from from the chicago sometimes why are you inserting yourself into this conversation what why why do you think people do that 
it seems like the kind of case you want to prevent is the bystander who just watches while people are slaughtered, right? So you you don't want that kind of case. You don't want a case where you watch your neighbor being dragged out of his home and killed and you simply sit on the sidewalk and eat popcorn. So it seems like that's on the one extreme and you're trying to prevent that kind of case. But on the other hand, and if, if you were someone else asking me this question, I'd say, well, we had this great guest on the show named Brandon Warmke <laughs> and he spoke about moral grandstanding. And that seems like a very good explanation for what's going on. Yeah. So the thought would be, at least in some cases, people can get moral credit or, or social status for inserting themselves into these sorts of moral dust-ups, taking someone's side and being seen as uh, an ally or a savior or something like that. That's the idea. Yeah. Do you think that, so, I mean, here's a question. Should I'll just ask it flatly out. Like, should Stephen A. Smith be forgiven? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what that would mean. Like, what would it mean for him to be forgiven? Yeah, right. By Otani. So Otani, so he says Otani needs an interpreter. So Otani says, eh, it's not a big deal. Suppose Otani had said, look, people say stupid stuff all the time. It's not a big deal. Uh, he talks for a living, right? When you talk for a living, you're going to say stupid stuff. And he said a stupid thing. It's not a big deal. I forgive him. Okay. What are the odds that that would be the end of the conversation? Like, like societally, like what are the odds that other newscasters, activists would be like, oh, okay, well, let's, let's move on and find something else. Well, it seems that you've got a perverse incentives problem so that if one way of withholding forgiveness and continuing the shame game is to elevate your status, which is to say, I will not tolerate what you have done to this other person. It is, even if they've forgiven you, it is, it is so beyond the pale, it's so unforgivable. Be more contrite, it's never good enough. And when you say that kind of thing, you just sound so good and righteous and the person who cares about justice and so pure. Um, and it's kind of sickening, really, in some senses. Uh, I mean, I also wonder about the, the metaphysics of the forgiveness. Who could be doing it? First of all, who, who's the target of the attack? Well, it seems that, on the one hand, it's one particular person, and that person could end the matter. In other words, if the two of us had a genuine grievance, and you find out that I've been sleeping with your wife for the last couple of years, and after a long conversation, you say, Mark, I forgive you. Maybe your wife needs to have a discussion with us as well, and there's a forgiveness there. That ends the matter. The nature of these sort of public episodes is that where is the end? There's always someone who's going to be on that offended category. What would it mean for some member of the Asian community to sort of stand up and say, you know what, I forgive you on behalf of all Asians. What about the ones who say, well, I don't forgive him. I never gave you a mandate to go and forgive this guy. I think what he said was beyond the pale and I, I don't give it. Do you require forgiveness from every individual in the community? And I also wonder, what does it mean to forgive? Is it about saying, well, the thing you said wasn't so bad. As you say, you speak for a living, you're going to say some dumb stuff. Maybe you were a bit unaware of it. The sort of question that's brought up by that other commentator is to say, well, I think you're lying. The reason why I don't forgive you is because I think your apology is bogus. When you say, I didn't mean to, and here's all my credit for why I couldn't have meant it because of all the other things I've said, he's saying, I can't forgive you because you haven't actually confessed your sins properly. True forgiveness requires truth. We need to, you need to confront what it is that you did. And if you said, look, I don't like the idea 
that a representative of America is not speaking English because I think the right thing for an American to do is speak God's language being English. And this Japanese imposter who comes here after we brought our wonderful God-given game of baseball to Japan, and then he comes and steals it away from us. He can't even speak our language. I think that's wrong. And if you said, I did that intentionally and I wanted to humiliate this guy and I accept that I did that, but I've now thought about it and I realized that I was wrong. Then you can say, well, you've confronted your sin. Now you deserve forgiveness. The other question about forgiveness is, you know, is it about restoring relations? Is it about sort of being able to move past the sin? Or is it just a merits concession? So in, in law, we talk about the merits and the damages. So the first question is, did you commit the crime? And the second one is, if you committed the crime, how much of a sanction do you warrant? And it seems like the apology game is about conceding the merits now. So it's saying, okay, well, you admit that what you did was wrong. So we're not going to forgive you for your apology. We now we just need to work out how much we need to berate you and hit you and for how long. And especially if it's a if you're a public figure and this is emblazoned on the internet, well, it'll always be remembered. We can just keep on berating you, you know, ad finitum. So I wrote my dissertation on forgiveness. One reason I was drawn to the topic of forgiveness, well, there's only two reasons. One, I, I thought it was intrinsically interesting. And there are lots of, I think, as we've already sort of Pauled at, there's lots of interesting puzzles and, and paradoxes when it comes to thinking about forgiveness and what forgiveness could be. The other thing that I noticed when I started thinking and writing about forgiveness was that at the time, there was a majority view about what forgiveness is. And most people, seemed to me anyway, had that view. And that view seemed to me to be wrong. Like it just, it just, that could not be what forgiveness is. So one way that I think about forgiveness in, in the abstract is as a, as a kind of move in a, in a conversation. So suppose I lie to you, Jason. You can think of that as a kind of moral contribution. I've, I've made a conversational move in, in moral life. And you, Jason, you respond with moral address, right? You, you, maybe you overtly blame me. You call me to account. Maybe uh, you call me up and say, hey, that was pretty disrespectful for you to lie to me. Maybe, maybe you gossip about me to someone else. You blame me in front of other people. And so you've made a, a further move in this, in this conversation. I can then respond to you with with a kind of further move in the conversation where I maybe make an apology, I explain myself, I make up for it in some way. Maybe I, I pick up your daughter from school for a week or something to make up for it. Forgiveness is what can happen at that further stage in the conversation where you might call that stage like moral moral repair or something, where you have an opportunity to continue to blame me. Maybe you have an opportunity to just forget about it altogether just move on, or you could forgive me. And so I, I think of forgiveness as that sort of stage in this moral conversation of something that can happen down the line. Now, what, what is forgiveness? <laughs> so this is, the, this is the tricky question. What is, what is forgiveness? I, I think it's very important to distinguish forgiveness from other kinds of cognate phenomena. So one of them being, say, justification or exoneration. When you forgive someone, you retain the judgment that that person still did something wrong or morally bad, okay? So for, to forgive someone is not to say, oh, they didn't, it turns out they didn't do anything bad or wrong. So it's not to exonerate, nor is it to excuse. So forgiveness requires that you retain the commitment or judgment that someone did something that was morally blameworthy. So if you found out, I, I know I lied to you and you like, you blame me, and then you discover I was slipped a pill 
that uh, when consumed makes people lie, you would say, oh yeah, he still did something wrong. He, he lied to me, but he has an excuse. He's not morally responsible for it. That would not be to forgive me. To, to forgive requires, as many people have pointed out, maintaining the, the judgment that someone did wrong and that someone is blameworthy for it. And this is what distinguishes forgiveness from other phenomena, but also what makes forgiveness very tricky to explain. So you, you have to you have to think like, okay, so this person did wrong, this person's blameworthy. And so what could forgiveness mean? Now, what one common way of thinking about forgiveness, and this is the view that I mentioned earlier that was kind of dominant for decades, is the view that forgiveness is roughly the overcoming of resentment. So when you do something bad or wrong to me, I respond with this morally reactive attitude of resentment. Now, what, what resentment is, is totally unclear. I mean, even the philosophers who write about forgiveness don't have a clear view about what, about what resentment is. But, but the, this popular view is that forgiveness is primarily just emotional change. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of mental hygiene. And what I do when I forgive you is I overcome or perhaps forswear repudiate my resentment towards you. There's a whole family of views and they, they disagree about all the details. Like some people want to add other emotions. Some people want to have a very specific set of emotions, like maybe hostility or hatred. But I call this family of views emotion views. So emotion views basically just say that forgiveness is a certain kind of overcoming of some emotion or changing your emotional state. So that's, that's one way of thinking about forgiveness. A second way is that forgiveness is something like the forswearing of revenge. So this is a view that actually goes back to Joseph Butler and Joseph Butler in the 18th century thought that forgiveness is basically, it's not quite overcoming resentment. It's foregoing or forswearing vengeful responses to, to a wrongdoer. So it's a, kind of, it's a kind of refusal to get back at someone. And so that's, that's a view. It has to do with like forswearing revenge. You could still remain resentful to someone and still forgive them, Butler says. So that's a second kind of view. A third kind of view says, no, forgiveness is really has to do with punishment. Now it's, it's not often clear what the difference is between say revenge and punishment and something like blame or overt blame. But some people think uh, that what you do when you forgive is you you refuse to punish someone or you give up your right to punish someone, something like that. There's another view called, you know, a performative view that focuses on utterances of I forgive you. So some people think the locus of forgiveness is not something in your head, as it were. It's, it's like a speech act. It's a performative. It's like saying, I christen this ship or I cancel your debt. When you say I forgive you, you're performing some act over and above the saying of the words itself. And then there's a whole debate about what you actually accomplish when you say, I forgive you. Some people think if you're committing to treat them, you know, as if they hadn't done wrong, maybe it means giving up certain rights to blame them, releasing them from certain obligations to you. So these people often think of forgiveness as a kind of normative power, just like making promises. So just like I can promise you to do something and that puts me under an obligation. I can say, I forgive. And I'm, I'm sort of altering normative reality in some way. So those are the main views. More, more recently, there's been a view that's come up that, that says that forgiveness is openness to reconciliation. Uh, a lot of people have tried to distinguish forgiveness from reconciliation that and then arguing that you can forgive without wanting reconciliation. But recently there've been some papers that arguing that no, forgiveness is just openness to reconciliation. So if you're not open to reconciling, you haven't forgiven, something like that. So those are the major views. Now I have my own view about what forgiveness is, but I, part of our 
discussions about forgiveness are so difficult because I find forgiveness to be a very complicated and complex practice. It's not, it's not obvious what someone is doing. And in fact, I think a very plausible way of thinking about forgiveness is as a diverse and diffuse practice. It's like blame, right? You can blame in your head. You can blame overtly, or you can call someone names, you can call them out in public. And I think forgiveness operates like that too. It's a very diverse practice. Something that's very interesting is that these different accounts will behave differently in the case of the sports commentator who now is or isn't forgiven by the masses. So for example, let's say you take the emotion view and you say the masses on Twitter and Facebook forgive the sports commentator if they let go of their resentment. I mean, the question I had earlier is, what does it mean for them to resent him? Yeah. Like, if they're not the person who was directly impacted, what is that emotion of resentment even? You know, what, what is it? How, is it? Is it justified? And that's the one question, is it justified? The second question is, is it resentment at all? Right. In other words, what is going on there when someone takes offense on behalf of someone else? You're asking the question, well, how do they then drop that, at least on the resentment view of forgiveness? How do they, they let go of that resentment? But you can't let go of resentment if there isn't resentment there in the first place. So on, at least on the emotion view, it seems like forgiveness might be impossible, given that there might be nothing to forgive. Excellent. Yeah. So we're starting to burrow our, our way into the, the little tricky puzzle. So here are, here are a few things that, that cause problems for any account of forgiveness. Often people will say resentment is a second personal emotion or reactive attitude, by which they mean something like, roughly, the only person who can feel resentment in response to a wrongdoing is the victim of that wrongdoing. So if, if you lie to me, Jason, I can feel resentment towards you. What Mark feels towards you would not be resentment. It would be the third person analog of resentment, which is indignation. So you can feel indignation about what Mark saw Jason do to me, but Mark can't feel resentment. And so if it were the case that a necessary condition on forgiving is overcoming resentment as understood as a second personal emotion, then I think you're right. It's hard to see how, for example, I could forgive Stephen A. Smith. Now, some people don't put too much stock in that, in that distinction. They think there's, there, there may be some differences between indignation and resentment, but that can't explain fully why we think that, for example, if I treat my brother badly, that like my plumber could forgive me, right? Or like either of you could forgive me. And so some people think that, and I'm one of these people, that in order to forgive, you need sta- what's called standing. And there's been a big debate in the forgiveness literature about, A, whether you need standing to forgive, and B, who has standing, okay? And there's a further question, like, what explains why some people have standing and why others don't? So some people think that only victims have standing to forgive. And that's that's a pretty, at least it used to be a pretty common view. I think it's maybe less common now. If that view is right, so if, if, if I'm the only one who can forgive you, Jason, for doing something to me, and yet Mark can still blame you. It's weird to me that we don't have, in English anyway, a concept or a term that picks out Mark's giving up his resentment or blaming towards you, right? So if only I can forgive you, if only I can put a rational terminus, as it were, on my blame and say, I forgive you, 
what is it that Mark does that's analogous to that? So one reason you might think that it's weird that we have this practice of only victims forgiving is that, well, of course, I can blame you, but and if, I, if, if I cease my blame, it's called forgiveness. What is it called when Mark does it? It's, it's unclear if he can't forgive. So there's this whole debate about, about what's called third-party forgiveness. So can people who are not, say, direct or indirect victims of wrongdoing, can they blame or can they, can they forgive? I think there are some compelling cases that, that suggest that that's possible, but some people build into their sort of account of forgiveness that in order to forgive, you have to have standing. And that's unlike blame right? Anyone can blame, but whether you should blame or not, anyone can do it. That's a, that's a common view. But there, there seems to be an asymmetry with, with forgiveness where not everyone can forgive. And I find that puzzling. It's a puzzling feature of our social evolution or moral evolution that we have a practice called forgiveness, but not a practice for whatever just random, whatever random person does when, when they stop blaming Stephen A. Smith. I'd like to think about a couple of other interesting puzzles that arise from what you said. The one might be someone who seeks forgiveness from a completely neutral party. So they go to their priests and they confess what they've done to others. And they say, I seek forgiveness from you or from a deity. The other one might be, I see a character flaw in you. That's a genuine character flaw. And I say, I forgive that about you. In other words, it's not that you performed an action against me or anyone else. It's the flaw in you that I'm forgiving. And, and maybe I can say, I've long held resentment against you because of this character flaw. And I now release the resentment. So I've changed my emotional state. And so it seems that I've gone through that forgiveness journey, despite the fact that it wasn't manifested at me. It wasn't something that you did to me or to someone else. I also wonder about whether you could have an obligation to forgive under certain circumstances. You might think, for example, that you described forgiveness as something that comes at a certain stage in a relationship, that the person has made penance, that they've, they've started to perform actions to try and reconcile the relationship. And if you think that forgiveness is about reconciliation and openness to reconciliation, that if you just said, I can't, uh, I refuse, I will not re-engage with you. There might be times where we think that that's perfectly legitimate. I'll give you an interesting true story. Justice L.B. Sachs was one of the first judges of the Constitutional Court, and he's very well known because he was also a freedom fighter and he lost his arm through a bomb attack and narrowly survived and he lost an eye as well. And after becoming a judge, the person who planted that bomb in his car went to go and see him and and he asked for forgiveness. And Albie found it a very difficult thing to do. And on some level he said, I'm, I don't really want a relationship with this person. This is someone who tried to kill me. And this is someone who now has this this burden that he's carrying and he feels deeply uncomfortable. And I know that if I, you know, shook his hand that I could undo that burden, but I'm not sure that it's obligatory upon me to do that. There are a few things there in your, in your comments, Mark, I, I think are really interesting. So one, the first thing you pointed out was this question of what I call proxy forgiveness. So third party forgiveness is where I forgive Mark, for something he did to Jason, right? That would be third-party forgiveness. I forgive you for something done to someone else. But there are these cases, you know, putative cases of proxy forgiveness, where it's not that I'm uh, forgiving Mark for what he did to Jason. I'm forgiving Mark on Jason's behalf. 
So suppose whatever mark you do to Jason, like he's in a coma or like, heaven forbid, he kills you or something, right? Then I say, on behalf of Jason, I, I forgive you. Or on behalf of maybe Jason's children or something, I, I forgive you. So that's a case of proxy forgiveness. Most people who think that that kind of forgiveness is possible think it's non-paradigmatic just like third-party forgiveness. So there's third-party forgiveness, there's proxy forgiveness, and then some people think there's self-forgiveness, like you can forgive yourself. And my view is these are all non-paradigmatic cases of forgiveness. And I think that's a pretty common view. So there is this puzzle about whether you can forgive on behalf of someone else. You, and you raise this question about forgiving for character, which is a really interesting topic. Everything we talked about so far has been forgiveness for actions, things that people do. Can you forgive someone for someone's character? McAllister Bell has a paper on this, forgiving um, someone for who they are and not what they do. And what she says is forgiving someone for an action involves overcoming resentment. Forgiving someone for their character involves overcoming contempt. So the idea would be that contempt is the kind of characterological analog of in, when, it, when it comes to forgiveness that, that resentment plays when you forgive someone for their actions. And th these are a lot of things I just don't have views about. I'm, I'm a very bad philosopher in, any way, in many ways because I don't have views about these things. And especially when it comes to this last thing you mentioned about the ethics of forgiveness, are we ever obligated to forgive? I've always found the ethics of forgiveness to be extremely puzzling because as it's Many people think of forgiveness as a kind of gift, but there are cases in which it looks like you'd be a really terrible person if you you didn't forgive. Like you tell me a white lie, right? And I and I blame you appropriately for it. And you apologize and like make it up to me and we go way back. And then I just hold this against you like your entire life. That looks like a case in which as good a case as any that I have an obligation to forgive. But most people think it's... it's it's unlikely that we have obligations to forgive because forgiveness is a kind of gift or something. They're, they're thinking forgiveness is a kind of charity or graciousness or mercy. And if that's the case, it's hard to see how you could be obligated to do it. That, that last case you mentioned is interesting because there are some critics of forgiveness who think that forgiveness involves this kind of like downranking. So Martha Nussbaum in a recent book, Anger and Forgiveness, she argues against forgiveness, the practice, the moral practice of forgiveness, because here's how she thinks of forgiveness. Like you wrong me. And I say, you bad man, you bad human being apologize. It's like, it's like, it's like down ranking, make yourself low before me. And then you like, look up to me and you say, Oh, I'm so sorry, Brandon. I'm a bad person. And, and, and then I overcome my resentment because you've made yourself low and, and so on. And so she, she thinks not only is resentment a metaphysically confused and morally inappropriate response to wrongdoing, she thinks that forgiveness involves this sort of like, I'm up here high and you're down there low. And she thinks that's that's morally bad too. And so you, you can imagine a response to the, the sort of case where you have in mind where, where someone is just uncomfortable making other people bring themselves low before them. What you're saying is bringing up so many issues. Not, not that what you're saying is wrong, but it just, just it, so many interesting questions that arise. One of them is, it seems like forgiveness and an apology are in some way conceptually linked. The question is, is the one necessary for the others? Could you forgive someone if they don't apologize? Is that even possible? The, the second one is, would you ever be morally obligated to forgive someone who doesn't apologize? You gave the case of the white lie, 
suppose you tell me the white lie and you never apologize. Should I hold yeah. it against you for the rest of your life? Yeah. Or could I hold it against you for the rest of your life without doing something wrong? Then, then there's other issues. So there, there's a lot of issues around groups versus individuals uh, that are arising here. Are, are groups the kind of things that can apologize? And are groups the kind of things that can accept apologies and forgive? Or is it only individuals to individuals? Or is it individuals to groups? Or is it groups to individuals? What is going on here? And that's particularly important in the case that you gave to start. Is it yeah. the sports commentator apologizing to a group of individuals? Or is it the sports commentator apologizing to a particular individual and a whole lot of other proxies or third parties now forgiving him on his behalf? So I think the, all, those are all great questions. I, the, the connection between apology and forgiveness is it's a complicated one. So my view is, and there's, there's lots of work on apology, as I'm sure you're both, you're both, both aware. And there's, there's not, in my view, a univocal sense of what it means to apologize or to say, I'm sorry, for example. There's lots of things that we can do with those words. My view is that although apology and forgiveness are sometimes maybe morally connected, it's unclear what the conceptual connection is. Here's what I mean by that. I can imagine someone saying, and I think this happens quite often, actually, where someone says, I am sorry. I apologize. I did something terrible, but I'm not asking you to forgive me. I don't expect you to forgive me. That seems to be a coherent, not conceptually confused thing to say. This is also my objection to this, these reconciliation views of forgiveness, where someone could say, please forgive me, but I don't expect you to reconcile with me. And, and, if, and if that is conceptually coherent, I think that makes it less clear that forgiveness has to involve openness to reconciliation. So I think apology need not be an invitation to forgive. However, a lot of people think that in order for forgiveness to be morally permissible or have some positive moral status, the wrongdoer has to apologize, repent, do restitution or whatever. And so there's basically two different kinds of views about when forgiveness is morally good. Some people think that the wrongdoers have to do something. They have to apologize. They have to have a change of heart and so on. And then there are people who think that they don't have to do that. And these are people who think that as long as you forgive for the right reasons. Now that is a whole other thicket. But suppose I forgive to like sleep better at night. Is is that a more is that a morally acceptable reason to forgive? But the, the idea is that as long as I forgive for the right reasons, full view of the moral landscape, and like I'm not servile or something, then it doesn't matter if the if if the wrongdoer has apologized or not. And the idea there is that my prerogative to forgive should not be held hostage by someone else's character flaws. Right. So if, if a wrongdoer is not willing to apologize or so on, why should I be hamstrung in my inability sort of metaphysically to forgive or morally forgive if, if that person's just a bad person? Of course they're a bad person. They already wronged me. So the connection between apology and forgiveness is it's, it's actually un, unclear to me what that connection is. Some people do think that forgiveness prima facie would be impermissible if someone hasn't apologized. Jason asked this question about the relationship between individual and collective 
apology and forgiveness. So I, I think everyone thinks that, that individuals can apologize. There's a question about whether groups or collectives or institutions can apologize. Now, there's another question about whether groups can forgive. I think if you think that forgiveness is possible, you probably think that it's paradigmatically happens in the individual case. But there is this question about whether groups can forgive or whether groups can be forgiven. So there's lots of different combinations, right? You could have individuals apologizing or forgiving collectives. Uh, you could have collectives apologizing to or forgiving individuals. There's a great book on political forgiveness by a political uh, theorist named P.E. Digesser who, that came out in the early 90s. And that book discusses a lot of these issues. Here's how I think of it. I actually think the, the question puts the lie on a specific way of thinking about forgiveness and challenges a very popular view of forgiveness. Think about apology. What do you do when you apologize? You have to, you have to communicate with someone. And I think it's possible for both individuals and groups, if there's a kind of collective, if you already buy into collective agency and groups can act, I don't see any reason in principle why, why groups or collectives couldn't apologize. I think it's a little harder in the case of forgiveness to make sense of collective forgiveness. Can groups forgive? Well, let's just think about what forgiveness might be. I mean, if you think that forgiveness just is something like overcoming resentment, what would it mean for a group of individuals to overcome resentment? I mean, does everyone have to overcome resentment? Do you have to have more than half? Do the representatives of the group have to overcome resentment? Do, they, do the members of the group have to commit to overcome resentment? It's not quite clear what counts as forgiveness if you are a group. And I think this actually, for people who want to say that groups can forgive, it forces them into a, a view of forgiveness of the sort that I prefer, which is forgiveness is a, is a performative or forgiveness exercise of a normative power. The only way I think to make sense of collective forgiveness is to make it an overt action. Right to have a representative of the group or the group to sign something or to recite something where they say we we forgive you, um, because it's just hard for me to make sense of the view that a group could forgive by changing their emotional state. I'm not exactly sure what that would mean. I'm sure philosophers can get real clever here and say something about that. But I am ha having said all that. I'm in print as being skeptical about whether groups can forgive or, or be forgiven. I think the way to think about this is just that the paradigmatic case of forgiveness and apology is just individual to individual. And as you move out from the core of that practice that's evolved for some purpose, it's less and less clear that you should call it forgiveness, how, how close it is to the paradigm case. Just with things like third-party forgiveness or proxy forgiveness, I think that group forgiveness is just not a pair. If it's possible at all, it's not a paradigm. In South Africa, we had the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission, and the idea was that in exchange for truth, you would be granted amnesty by the state. So you had people that committed crimes during apartheid and on both sides. So in other words, you had members of the National Party government who admitted to torturing people. You had members of the African National Congress admitting to planting bombs, acts of terrorism, killing civilians in the service of a political goal. And so the idea was that if you were forthcoming, if you told all the truth and that it really was in this political objective, then you would be granted amnesty. So there's a sense in which you are pardoned by the state. So you could not be prosecuted for your crime. And also you, you couldn't be held civilly liable. Victims or um, survivor families couldn't sue you. They would be compensated by the state instead. But you would then also have these moments where 
let's say someone who had been tortured or someone who just wanted to find out what had happened to their dead husband was participating in this process. And sometimes they would have this emotional reckoning where they'd say, thank you for, for confessing this. I've always wondered whatever happened to, to my husband. And now I can move on. Now I can overcome the resentment that I felt because you've been honest and I forgive you. And there are others who would say, I can't forgive you. I cannot come to terms with this awful thing that I now know that you did, but you are nonetheless pardoned by the state. So it seems that there's a sense in which forgiveness and being pardoned are related concepts, but not the same. And, and I also wonder how you would tie that up to something like being exonerated, if you see that as a totally different thing. I'm no expert on the Truth and Reconciliation Committees. I, I read Bishop Tutu's book several years ago. It's, I will make the totally banal observation that I'm not the first one to make this, that it's interesting that, that the, those committees were called Truth and Reconciliation, not Truth and Forgiveness. Even though his book is called No Future Without Forgiveness, the, the committees themselves, I, I take it, were primarily focused on truth-telling and reconciliation because, look, we got to move on. We got to find a way to live together. And that may or may not require forgiveness, but it minimally requires some level of reconciliation. I think that mercy or pardon comes apart from forgiveness quite cleanly. So you can imagine in an idealized situation, this is not possible in probably any modern legal system, but you can imagine a judge in a courtroom being the victim of the crime, okay, and standing before the accused who's guilty and saying, look, you vandalized my car, okay, or you took a baseball bat to my mailbox. And look, I forgive you as, as this wrong was done to me, an individual person in the moral community. However, as a person who's been tasked with meeting out justice, there's, a, there's a, a further choice I can make about whether to punish you say, as a representative of the state, or to pardon you. I think parents do this with their children, too. And so you can imagine like a child breaking the house rules. And one of the house rules is like, don't mouth off to mom and dad. And, and then Jimmy apologizes, and, and, and mom says, look, I forgive you, Jimmy, but look on the fridge. There are rules on the fridge, <laughs> and I have to enforce these rules, and so you've got to go to your room, or no, no computer for a week or whatever. And I think what those cases show is that the spheres of blame and forgiveness, the, inter, the interpersonal sphere of blame and forgiveness is, is a different, maybe overlapping sphere than the sphere of justice and punishment and pardon and mercy. And I do think there is a, a, a common assumption when people talk about forgiveness, that if you forgive someone, what you're saying is they should be let off the hook in every possible way. That that if you forgive someone, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be held to account, perhaps by others or by the state. And so I do think that separating these issues like pardon, mercy, issues of justice and punishment from the issues of forgiveness can allow people, I think, to be more inclined to forgive. They know that forgiving someone doesn't mean totally letting them off the hook in any normative arena that might arise. It seems like forgiveness could be the kind of term that's relies on an equivocation, that it has multiple different meanings. Sometimes when someone says, I forgive you of your sins, it means that you are pardoned, that your sins have been expunged. 
The other one is to say, I've forgiven my dead father. You couldn't ever communicate that to your dead father. The implication is that you have overcome the negative feeling that you had towards the person, but there's no prospect of reconciliation because it's an impossibility. And the other one is to say, I am now open to us commencing our relationship because I have forgiven you. And maybe you could say, we need to have the relationship back on track, but I still harbor some negative feelings towards you. And I still think it's just that you are punished. There's different ways in which this term operates. And I wonder if, is it useful then to have, is it, is it best to think about forgiveness as this umbrella, or is it something that we should jettison and just talk about these underlying, very different kinds of values? Yeah, that's a nice question. There are generally two approaches to giving an account of the nature of forgiveness. Some people are monists. They think that the goal is to identify the thing that is forgiveness, you know, analyze this concept or this specific practice and figure out what the necessary and sufficient conditions are, or maybe the sufficient conditions or some of the important necessary ones, something along those lines. But in every instance, if it's forgiveness, then it's this thing. And then there are pluralists, and I count myself among the pluralists who say that, look, our, our forgiveness practices are diverse and diffuse, much like our blaming practices or our you know apologizing practices and our punishing practices. These take different forms. I, I, I do think that forgiveness is, I don't know, uniquely, but uniquely complex. I mean, think about it this way. It makes total sense to say, I forgave you in my heart, but that's something else then what happens when I say the words sincerely in a certain kind of friendly context, I forgive you. I think I'm doing two very different things. And I think both of those things count as forgiveness. Now, I, I would say that at, there, there comes a point at the margin where I do think it maybe is not helpful to call these things forgiveness. Um, and uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to resolve those disputes. I don't know at what point you get a practice that's, that's, it's actually unhelpful to call those things forgiveness because they obscure the paradigmatic cases or the core features of forgiveness that make it a distinctive part of our moral responsibility practices. I don't know how to resolve those disputes. Maybe there is no way that, to resolve those disputes except a social negotiation and taking a philosophy class or something where you can figure out like, well, no, I mean, this doesn't require saying no one did anything wrong. Forgiveness doesn't require giving up any right to see justice done, something. Like so on your view, the resentment position is wrong. So the resentment view is that forgiveness involves letting go of an emotion, a negative emotion. And you, you suggesting that there's more complex, a more complex position, which partly involves a performance. So you are doing something and that impacts the other person. So a question we might ask is, if the resentment view is wrong, then why should I do that? Because on the resentment view, it makes sense why I would do that because the resentment might be harming me. And so when I forgive you who has harmed me, it's helping me. I'm letting go of my anger or my resentment or whatever it is. But if the emotion view is wrong, then why should I maybe not let you off the hook, but why should I forgive you? Good. So I'll say very briefly what my view of forgiveness is, and then I'll try to answer this question. So my, my view is a little complicated, but I, I think it's pretty simple once you see the picture. So I do think that forgiveness is a diverse practice. So I think you can forgive in your heart. I think you can utter the term or utter, utter the sentence, I forgive you and thereby forgive. I think both those things are true. So I call the first sort of forgiveness, private forgiveness. I call the second sort of forgiveness, something like overt, overt forgiveness. 
And what I think the paradigmatic cases of forgiveness are those in which there, you have overlap. So there's a kind of mesh between the private mental states, your dispositions, your beliefs, and your commitments, your private commitments. And then this exercise of a normative power that you engage in when you say, I forgive you. And I'll say why I think that's important in a second. But um, I think the paradigmatic cases of forgiveness of which you have this overlap, you have the sort of motivating and rationalizing interior states. Maybe that involves overcoming resentment. I don't think it's necessary to overcome resentment. I think you, you could you could forgive without, privately forgive without ever having resentment towards someone, especially if you think resentment, as many people do, is a negative emotion in the first place. Like you shouldn't respond to wrongdoers with resentment. Maybe you're a free will skeptic, or maybe you're a sort of ancient perfectionist or something where you think that resentment itself is not is not desirable. And so maybe you overcome it as a kind of remediation, but it'd be better if you didn't respond to wrongdoing with resentment in the first place. Anyway, the point being, I think the paradigmatic cases involve this sort of like mesh between what's going on in here and what I, and what I do um, to you. And several other philosophers have pointed this out. And okay, so here's why it's important to, in my view, do the outward stuff, do the, the stuff that I really think is core to the practice of forgiving. I don't think the private stuff is, is all that core to why we have a moral responsibility practice of forgiving. And here's why. I think that any account of forgiveness has to explain this. After I forgive you, the operative norms that govern our relationship have been altered. So suppose I say, Jason, I forgive you. And then I come back the next day and I say, hey, hey, jerk, why'd you do that thing? You owe me an apology. Like, you'd be really confused. Like, wait a second. Like, Brandon, I thought you forgave me. Like, why are you making these moral demands on me? You'd think that I either had forgotten that I forgave you or that I was mistaken about what forgiveness is or I'd gone back on my commitment or something. You'd, you'd think something had gone amiss. So I think that forgiveness changes the, the relational norms that existed due to a prior wrongdoing. So I said, when we talked previously, like that you can think of these exchanges as a kind of moral conversation. So you wrong me, that changes the norms, right? Because it, it now makes blame permissible, for example, maybe even obligatory. And then I blame you, right? And that might make, you know, add, add reasons or give you extra reasons to, to apologize or um, repent or something. And now we're in a situation where we both know in, in the paradigmatic case, that I'm allowed to blame you, that I'm allowed to withdraw friendly relations, make demands, and so on. What I think forgiveness does is it, it flips the norms to something approaching the ex-ante state. So in other words, it brings us back closer to, maybe not exactly, but it brings us back closer to the interpersonal norms that existed prior. Because once I say forgive you, I'm basically giving up my right to blame you, such that if if I continued to blame you, you'd be justified in saying, hey, buddy, like, I thought you forgave me. So on my view, when I say I forgive you, it, it's a normative power. It's a speech act that does a couple, th several things, but the two most important are I give up my rights to blame you and I release you from certain obligations to me, like to apologize, to make demands, to make reparation, restitution, and so on. So now we can answer your question. Why forgive? right? If it's not just mental hygiene, what's the point of forgiveness? And the way that I think of forgiveness is that it's a public rational terminus to a blaming interaction. I mean, suppose there was no way, no formally 
recognized way in a moral community to let you know that like, I'm not going to blame you anymore. And then if I did blame you, you'd be right to, to, to criticize me. I mean, it, we'd be in a situation where like, you'd like, are we, are we good? Like, are we friends? Like, can I come around and hang out? Like, can I call you up and can we go get drinks? Unless I make it clear to you somehow that we are back on something approaching an ex-ante state, it's hard to get along. And so my view is we evolved or God gave us or something, a, a practice of forgiveness that allows us to make clear with one another where we stand. And, and that's over and above any of, any of the mental hygiene. So I do think that overcoming resentment, getting rid of vengeance, these attitudes, that's, that's pretty positive. I think that's usually he healthy for people to do, but I, I don't think that's the end all be all of the goal of forgiveness. I do think I take this sort of social community, moral community view where we got to get along. Now, now, that doesn't always mean we, 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 we reconcile fully, but I think in the paradigmatic case, it at least lets you know where you stand, right? You can come around the neighborhood again. And, and trust that I'm not going to throw rocks at you. So that makes a lot of sense in a lot of situations. It makes sense, especially where there's an iterative interaction happening. So where I'm going to see you again tomorrow. And let's say you're my baker and there's only one bakery in, in, in town. And I've just got to get along with you or you're my parent, And it's just massively problematic if I never speak to you again. But the kind of cases where that account doesn't seem to work are cases where I could have no more truck with you if I wanted, which seems to be the case more and more as cities grow. And also in cases where there's been a crime committed by a stranger. So a stranger kills my wife. And it's known that a lot of people make these public displays, as you say, of forgiving. That is entirely mysterious to me on your account why that would happen, because on your account, it doesn't seem like, a, like anything has been gained by the community. I mean, is it some sort of evolutionary throwback, you know, that I do this and it's just misplaced? Or is there a good reason for it? Yeah, that's a tough question. It's a fine question. So I'm going to say a few things that may not be fully satisfying. So one, I, one thing that I often fall back on is I just say, look, this, my account is of the paradigm cases. And if you want an account of forgiveness that explains every single thing we call forgiveness, what you will end up with is a very minimal list of things. And it's not going to be very illuminating. And it may be actually impossible to get whatever that is. So I fully grant that there are going to be cases in which forgiveness does not, as it were, fulfill, not easily fulfill its intrinsic teleology or its intrinsic functions, where it's not able to sort of do the sorts of things that I just mentioned. So I think if I'm right, that those are the paradigmatic cases, what I say is this, well, we have cognate practices or practices in the neighborhood that function in similar ways. Now, it might be that in the cases that you, they, you know that you mentioned, suppose someone vandalizes your car. This is an, an, an example that David Garrard, David McNaughton and Eve Garrard use. Like someone, vandal, someone vandalizes your car at night and you don't know who did it. Can you forgive? I mean, it's a tough question. Like if you think there has to be some intentional object of your forgiveness, like that you can pick out or name, maybe not. But if you just say, oh, I forgive that person for for trashing my car. It's, it's hard to know what that, what that comes to. And I think that's going to be difficult on any view of forgiveness. I think just this just raises, I mean, you've just raised, this is why I find forgiveness so fascinating and puzzling. I think there is a real practice of forgiveness. I think we can do it. 
I think we have a reasonably clear idea of what it is and what it isn't, but you can ask all these really difficult questions. And, and I don't know, I mean, maybe it's just like you overcome a generalized resentment in, in this case against the person who trashed your car. And, and, and so my account is not going to explain why, what the point of that is socially. Maybe in that case, it just is mental hygiene. And that's a kind of forgiveness. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of forgiveness that's, that's parasitic on the more paradigmatic forms. But yeah, but look, the cases that you're mentioning, we, we talked off camera last time, you know, Jason said he's totally new to this forgiveness literature, but you're asking all the right questions. I mean, these are the puzzles that philosophers of forgiveness are trying to work out. It's a difficult question. I suppose a couple of ways of addressing Jason's concern. The one might be that you can have an account of what forgiveness is, and you could then have a different kind of assessment of, of it. So the one might be to say, it is rational to forgive someone because you'll restore a relationship that's good for you. It might be good for your mental health. Or you might say, this is a case where you're going beyond the call of duty. So when you forgive the person who murdered your, your spouse, uh, and you don't have any existing relationship that needs to be repaired, you might say, well, you've gone beyond the call of duty and you've done something very praiseworthy by forgiving that person. And then you might think of a case where forgiving someone is a very bad thing to do. So I'm thinking of like a, a battered spouse case where, you know, the same bad behavior keeps repeating itself. And no matter how many times you get your head smashed into the table, you say, I forgive you, honey. And it seems like you've performed an act of forgiveness under circumstances where it was bad for you and is keeping this toxic relationship alive. So you can sort of separate out the motivations from the act. I wonder about this though, is forgiveness an act or is it part of a process? So is it either the end step in other words, once we've gone through these other things in the process to reconcile or to get over the negative emotion that we then climb the mountain and say we have achieved forgiveness, or is forgiveness more the kind of thing that you have to do repetitively? So you might think that you've forgiven someone, that you say, I forgive you. And in that moment, the negativity dissipates or the relationship gets back on track, but then the memories of the awful incident come back and you get reluctant about you know continuing the relationship or you you feel the resentment that you had again and you have to keep re-forgiving you might think about this about let's say you performed some some horrible action yourself let's say you killed someone while drunk driving and you every day have to forgive yourself for that every day you wake up feeling the sense of shame and mortification and you have to continually perform the act of forgiveness are we talking about something that is an end state where you can say, now I'm finally forgiven and there are various things you have to do to get there, uh, or is it this ongoing journey? This is great, guys. Are you, are you sure you haven't done a lot of reading about forgiveness? I mean, this, these are these are the exact, yeah, these, these are the puzzles. Okay, so let me say a few things. Mark, you, you, you mentioned this distinction we can make about or, or between the motivations for forgiving and the forgiveness itself. Now, this actually gets really tricky because there are some philosophers who think that if you don't forgive for the right reasons, it's not forgiveness. It's, it's say, condoning or putting up with or something along those lines. In some early work in the, in the late 80s, Jeffrey Murphy floated a view like this. It looks like what he's saying is if you don't forgive for the right reasons, whatever those happen to be, it's not forgiveness at all. And if you're forgiving just so the, the beatings stop, that's not forgiveness. 
That's something else, but it's not forgiveness. So there is this question about, does forgiveness require reasons at all? Most philosophers say, yes, you need to forgive for a reason. If you just wake up one morning and find that your resentment is gone, most philosophers will say that you haven't forgiven. Although some, some say you have, some say you have forgiven. You just wake up one day and it's like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't resent Jason anymore. So I guess I, I guess I forgave him. It's unclear in what sense I, I could have forgiven for reasons in that case. Many philosophers will say you have to forgive for reasons and specifically quote unquote moral reasons. So suppose I do something to Jason and Mark says, hey, Jason, if you forgive Brandon, I'll give you $100. Jason's like, okay, I, I forgive him. That doesn't seem to be the right sort of reason. And so that either makes it not forgiveness or it makes it not morally above board forgiveness. It depends on whether you build the, the reasons requirement into forgiveness itself or not. But there are philosophers who think that you can permissibly forgive for say, prudential reason. It's hard to say exactly what the distinction is between prudential and moral, right? So maybe it's to preserve the health of the, of, you know, of the relationship or to preserve your own flourishing. Is that a prudential reason or a moral reason? It's unclear. So there are those debates. So I just wanted to point out that that's actually a minefield about what kinds of motivations go into forgiveness and whether you forgive with bad motivations at all. Okay, so the other question was this question about is forgiveness an end stage? Is it something that you arrive at or is it the process itself? Now, on my own view, I think the paradigmatic cases are forgiveness is an act. It's, it's a certain kind of event, whether that's an end stage or a process depends on, I think, on your metaphysics. of. But, it, but you know, for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a performative action in the, in the paradigmatic case. Now, I do think that this question that you, that you raise presents a lot of problems for emotion views of forgiveness. So suppose I overcome my resentment towards you, like tomorrow, and suppose the resentment, I mean, this is not actually how emotions work, so it's hard to even, I don't even know how to talk about this, like, that's sort of attentive to act to our actual emotional lives. But let's say I, I overcome my resentment, and so I quote unquote forgive you, then the resentment comes back. Have I unforgiven you? Have I undone my forgiveness? Do I need to forgive you again? I think on the emotion views, there's this difficult question about knowing whether you've actually ever forgiven or not and knowing whether someone has forgiven you. So I know at least one philosopher who says like, if I, if I overcome resentment against you and I don't feel resentment for like 30 years, and then I wake up one morning and I discover that I still resent you or discover new resentment, that shows that I never forgave you. So I think those kinds of Emotion views encounter all kinds of problems. Now, though, there are similar kinds of problems that plague any any view of forgiveness, where the thing that you are giving up or for swearing comes back, and then there's this question about whether you've unforgiven or not. It's also a question about whether you can retract your forgiveness voluntarily. So, suppose I forgive you for something, thinking you only did it once, and then I discover that you've been doing it more. And can I, can I take back my forgiveness? Maybe because I had a false view of the world or I was misled or something. In the, in, in the Gospels, someone asked Jesus, how much should I forgive? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, right? You should forgive. And the idea is that you should forgive like a lot. And C.S. Lewis has this quip where, where he says, Jesus didn't mean you should forgive like 70 times seven different offenses. Like whenever someone 
wrongs you, you should forgive. What he meant was you should forgive 70 times someone like the person who has for, has like wronged you once. Like you're going to have to wake up every day and continue to forgive. And that's I think that's the idea that you were suggesting there, Mark, that maybe you have to keep keep forgiving. And I think that might be true on, on some views of forgiveness. I think these are fascinating questions, as you say, and, and pertinent to the social realm as well, especially when groups are involved.